Center of Africa is host to uh, the second largest chunk of, uh, of tropical rainforest in the world, the Congo Basin Forest. And this forest also hosts um, one of the most specific indigenous peoples in the world. We commonly call them the pygmies, but they have more specific names, the Baka, Bajili, Bakula, Batua, Bedzang, and so, and so on, specifically depending on which country they are. These people and all the forest is found in a group of countries, uh, come including Cameroon, Central African Republic, uh, Gabon, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. This region is also where you have huge natural resources, mines, but you also have the forest for its timber. You also have water resources and also the, the pygmies, whose daily life depends on going to the forest, uh, borrowing into the forest, getting wild fruits from the forest, which they eat, uh, hunting small animals for their food. But on the contrary, this way of life is not yet recognized by the government. The national laws don't recognize indigenous, indigenous hunter-gatherers as, you know, if you, if you go and hunt in the forest, you don't leave any sign. You go and gather food, you don't leave any sign. You definitely have to cut down the forest to plant something that is when they recognize that, okay, you. So as against the other uh, local people living in the forest who are carry out agrarian activities, the rights of indigenous hunter-gatherers are not recognized. Also, those of the local people are not recognized in any part of uh, the region. The main challenges that the pygmy tribes are facing right now is from the mineral and oil extraction companies from outside Cameroon. There is a rising interest in the resources in that region, basically coming from outside. You have uh, foreign direct investments who are coming to get uh, the minerals, the oil, diamond, gold, and all of those resources, which has also reasons for the different conflicts that have been happening in the region. I didn't mention that this is also a region in terms of governance. It's a very challenging region in terms of governance. Democracy is... <laughs> there we have the longest standing president. My own president has been in power for over 30 years. Uh, and uh, the next door in Gabon, the current president took over from his father. <laughs> in Democratic Republic of Congo is the same thing, you know. So it's a very challenging region in terms of, of governance, uh, democracy. They're grabbing for, for the resources, both land grabbing for industrial agro plantations, oil palm, rubber to feed northern interests or western interests. And also the challenge of these countries, all of them want to be emergent economies by the year 2025, 20, 2035 for the different countries. They want to be emerging economies. And uh, emerging economies not by increasing tourism or ecotourism, but by increasing the use of these resources. It will be escalating of mining. Logging has been there for ages. It will be opening up roads, railways for to extract these resources and and send them out. And this will have definitely huge impacts on, on the environment, but also huge impact on the people who are living there. So those are huge uh, challenges in an area where governance is a challenge, in, in an area where the rights of the people who live there are not recognized. Samuel of Cameroon describes some of the risks and successes grassroots groups are having, limiting the environmental damage in the rainforest from palm oil companies. So you need these voices. How, how do we bring these uh, grassroots issues to national policy, but also to international policy level? And that is just what um, I have been doing for the past uh, over a decade, helping the communities to have their voices heard, providing little support through research through, uh, that can help communities to have a meeting to strategize. Having that meeting and having that action done can be picked up with a bigger organization. Uh, Greenpeace will pick it up, and then that can lead to a big global 
a campaign that can permit to change a nation. I'll be happy to give you an example. The lack of governance is one barrier to environmental protection. Yeah, I was just talking. <laughs> I was talking about this uh, uh, global uh, urge for for resources. The example I'll give you is. Uh, Fortunately, I'm in America, and then I would like to cite an example of an American firm, the Heracles Farm, which got a huge area of land, really forest land. It was 73,000 hectares of, of forest land that this company had to negotiate. I don't know how orthodox they had to negotiate with probably some people in, in government or so. Uh, 73,000 hectares of land at the periphery of uh, very key protected areas, including protected area periphery, but also including community lands. And uh, one small local group called uh, CEFE that is struggling to economize uh, future environment with the leader called uh, Nasako Bisingi, uh, we got in touch with him, just provide a small grant, 5,000 hectares, that permitted him to mobilize, gather communities, talk about, uh, he started raising voices. And this voice was picked up by Greenpeace and other organizations, national organizations in Cameroon, Center for Environment and Development, and many other organizations that, because of that small impact, they could pick up. Mm -hmm. And a global campaign uh, arised, which attracted people in America, we attracted uh, so many groups here, including uh, university dons. And at the end of this, we have the government you know, listening to this and taking action. The president had to sign a decree, and that concession was reduced from 73,000 hectares to a little bit less than 20,000 hectares. And the amount for the lease from a dollar <laughs> or two dollars to about six dollars. So I think that is resounding success. But this goes with some negative impacts, including criminalization of this activist was doing that, uh, Nasako Bisengi, constantly in court, <laughs> you know, up to now, and uh, that, you know, goes to court every day, and it is very dangerous for those people. Samuel continues with another example of how small groups get the attention of international organizations who can help pressure for environmental efforts. As groups speak out, people are also talking about their rights to democracy, addressing larger governance issues. Civil society voice has been very limited. You know, the few uh, activists were criminalized, were sent on exile, but you know, we able to help small groups come up. You know, you have you, you have a small group that starts, and then a few grants make them now. They they are known by more bigger organizations, and then they become a bigger organizations at the long run. I know lots of organizations like that who are now uh, very key players in the environmental sector, in the social justice sector in Africa. They are now dialoguing with government. They are now vacuuming all these experiences to feed up uh, international policy debates. Like uh, I've been part of the, the Accra Caucus, uh, which is a coalition of uh, southern and northern organizations. You know, we've had groups that could have benefited from uh, small grants, and then they can be able to move to influence national policies. You know, they are bringing the grassroots voices not only to national policy frameworks, but also to international policy. I can cite today. Uh, forest and climate change, the red plus, which is reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, have some strong uh, safeguard policies, thanks to the fact that groups could really bring their experience on the ground and uh, you know, share this experience with others from the north who have a, a good mechanism of how these policy development frameworks work. And we could be able to come out with uh, some more strong safeguards, including that uh, of the Cancun safeguards uh, on the Red Plus initiative. 
Samuel proposes an idea to create a regional advisory board to protect pristine forests in Central Africa. He worries that they will disappear if nothing is done because of the impact of large palm oil plantations. I have been working to see that these small groups, at times the impact that they, are, they make on the ground, are hardly seen because these impacts are pretty stolen by <laughs> these big organizations that are very, they are very well known. They have good uh, media communication strategies. For example, a local group fighting for their rights with a company. If they can raise their voice at the grassroots against an issue, an environmental or social issue, in the long run, that will make people start talking about their own rights with respect to democracy. Samuel talks about the use of small grants to secure political protection for the Congo region rainforest. Yeah, for yeah, as you said, for over a decade now, I've been working with uh, Global Green Grants, more specifically on the International Financial uh, Institution Advisory Board. Yeah, most of the grants that I've given to I've given to this advisory board, which have gradually moved from grassroots and then they're moving out to meso groups and even to national groups, which is getting recognition by other groups for the good work they are doing. There is a voice. I mean, we want to talk about great voice. People's, you know, grassroots, but it's very challenging in, in Central Africa. The IFI board alone cannot do everything. I've been using the International Financial Institution Board to vacuum all this, but now, why not have a Central African board where we can more specifically address these issues? Um, looking forward to how we'll be focusing on empowering women's advocacy actions on resources focusing on indigenous people's rights, and uh, no, how we focusing on protecting, I mean, this pristine forest that has been existing there is actually the, 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 the least, uh, the lowly deforested. Let me use, if I can use that word. But potentially, in the couple of years, if I look at what will be happening, what has been planned, I'm afraid this forest is going to disappear if nothing is done. Climate change has made groups see the link between efforts in distant parts of the region, the north and the south. My greatest outcome would be protecting the Congo Basin rainforest for environmental justice, social justice, the people who live there, their rights are recognized and uh, protected. And then we have a better world for everyone, linking the south and the north. Mm -hmm. Climate change has made us to see that link. Uh, impact that is happening here will be felt the other way. Actions that are happening the other way will definitely be, f be felt here. Samuel addresses the impact of the World Bank oil pipeline projects on local people. We have uh, oil producing countries like mm -hmm. Gabon, Cameroon, and who are presently feeling the impact because of the low prices in oil. If you look at all the conflicts or all the problems that oil says has created, I'm talking because I know I'm just next by Nigeria with all the mm -hmm. Delta problem. I have been involved in the Chad Cameroon Pipeline project, one of the hugest uh, foreign direct investments in sub-Saharan Africa, um, to drill oil from uh, southern Chad, passing through pristine forest in Cameroon to the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, and, uh, and then you see those big actors like the, the World Bank, and, <laughs> you know, the World Bank's uh, you know, coming to see that as a, a new paradigm of development, where resources could be uh, extracted and then um, with the impact they'll have on the environment. And I had the privilege of, of working on this on, on, or being present when this was happening. Just imagine 1,000 kilometers times length of a pipeline times uh, six meter. 
along the forest, what impact that will have for indigenous people who might say live on the resources of the forest. It creates a direct impact. And now to mitigate or to, to mitigate this impact, a protected area is created somewhere else. Indigenous uh, uh, people, hunter-gatherers that were living in that protected area are asked to leave <laughs> because <laughs> the protected area has been created. So you have a double impact for local communities. Impact where it ha is happening and impact where it is not happening. These people, they are not the ones who caused the pipeline to come, <laughs> but they were living happily in the forest, borrowing through getting the non-timber forest products and, and small game that they can eat in. But now they're asked to leave without any compensation. And those are some of the impacts which these huge international financial institutions, they just do without, you know, without the times not knowing what impacts they're having. Samuel outlines the role of social innovation, entrepreneurship, and corporate responsibility on local activism. Social innovation, if I look at social innovation in terms of technology, in terms of um, the new social media, if I look at that as innovation, that could be a big vehicle for information. Social media now is becoming a very uh, useful source of uh, uh, vehiculing uh, information. If you look at Africa, many, many countries uh, had to stop the social movement, the social media, because people could use it to communicate and then go against, uh, or organize a strike, like in DRC, where people wanted to march to avoid the president going in for the third term. They have to cut up all that. But again, if you look at... Uh, I, I talked about governance. I, excuse me to emphasize on, on governance. If there is no governance, then people will not participate in decision making. I said people are not consulted. You just get out from your bed and you find there was a bulldozer outside there. And somebody comes, okay, we've been given the permission by the government to get into your forest. And, uh, so these are some bags of rice. This is uh, some meat. So you guys should eat. This is what we bring for you. That is all. So. Is that social responsibility? Like, okay, we are going to build you a church, we're going to create a football field. Is that corporate social responsibility? I mean, there is no appropriate dialogue, consultation. Talk about this principle of uh, free prior informed consent, which is a theory, but it's hardly ever. Well, there are no policy frameworks for, for free prior informed consent. So you cannot have corporate social, where the dialogue is with the, 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 the individuals, I don't say, individuals in government, individuals who feel they represent the state. And then the people will be affected, no representation. I think there's a strong link between people's participation, not coming to a meeting and then you sign your name on, <laughs> and then we say, oh, we consulted them. How do you permit people to discuss the impacts, the pros and cons of what you're going to do, and then you come out on common grounds on, okay, how are we going to mitigate this? Could we not do it because it's going to have more impacts, or how could we do it in a way that mitigates negative impacts? How does he get together people who live far apart? It's possible to do that. You must not bring all the people at all the time. But you can have people who, who have these similar problems. If somebody comes from genuinely selected from an indigenous people's community, it will not be different from what other indigenous people are living. So if you want to consult people, you want to talk to people, you can bring an array of people in different circumstances, and then you, you consult them, get their view. And... Uh, Make sure that it's strangulated. Yeah, there are, there are ways of doing it, and it can work. But at times, people from bad faith or from laziness, they don't want to. <laughs> they don't know what to do that. Illiteracy and lack of formal education makes people vulnerable to corrupt officials who can bribe people by providing small bits of food. People being, there's a clear links between 
uneducated, if I can say uneducation, or in, uh, people not uh, illiteracy, failing with illiteracy and understanding your right. If I look at the way elections are, it's who brings the highest food? That means election. It's not who brings the idea or, yeah. It shouldn't be only formal education like going to school, but if you go to school, then you're able to analyze things differently. Uh, but also you can be educated on your rights. Now, if this is what the law says, uh, you know, I have a right to get into this forest. I have a right to stop this person from getting to the forest without open. So it's a very, education is very important. Unfortunately, uh, this is the region where it's, uh, it's most lagging. If you go to DLC, you'll be very sorry <laughs> to look at the map of schools and, <laughs> and the communities. It will be very frustrating. I've had the privilege to be in very remote areas in DLC. And uh, even the quality of education is a problem. So education is very important. And if we have to move forward, then people have to be educated formally, but also informally. If I can call the type of education that NGOs are bringing to communities as uh, informal education, but also the formal education of going to a formal school and learning the ABCs and stuff will be very important. How do people communicate with the French and English split between peoples in different regions? Yeah, if you look at the history of the country, you, we got into that split where English and French because of colonial history. Uh, the part of Cameroon that is now uh, English-speaking was colonized by the British. And it's just 20% and includes these two provinces or two regions of the 10 regions of the country. And then the, the bigger part, which is 80%, was colonized by the French. And uh, these two became independent or reunified um, uh, after a, a referendum. And like <laughs> any all solutions, you know, you have the, the weaker, the stronger solution will pull the weaker one. Well, the English culture that we, inherit, we, we, we learned, I don't want to say we inherited from the British was almost assimilated in the French Cameroon. By the time I was going to the university, there was just one university in, in Cameroon, whereas I did my primary, secondary in English, then I have to go to the shock of starting to learn in the university in French. <laughs> and all my university, seven years in the university, basically in French, and if you have to work, most of the, geographically, the bigger part of the country is in French. So. I find it difficult at times to just speak English, but then you have to be looking for terms in French. As a result of the discrimination Samuel felt as an English speaker in French areas, he was motivated to help pygmies in their struggle with logging companies and their Bantu neighbors who are protected area managers. I was born and grew up from the English-speaking Cameroon, which was a minority. And, uh, I mean, the discrimination I got while in the university, I can't... You know, there ipso facto a francophone, a French-speaking student feel more superior than you. I was among the top five in my class when I was coming, but I got to the university and for because of language, you know, I'm like a, a, a second-class citizen. And for those who even worked in government, they felt the same. And when I went to agronomy, I had to do an end of course research, and I had to go to uh, Baka, this pygmy area. I was so surprised to see. I've read a lot about them as the first inhabitants of the forest. I expected to see, you know, people living very well. But I was so surprised how discriminated these people were, discriminated not only by the policy, but discriminated by their immediate neighbors, the Bantu farmers. If you read history, they have moved to meet these people. That is where I was say, but come on, if I could feel 
discriminated because of but these people that is where my interest of working with on the environment I, that's where I, I nest that interest I started working with Baka people uh, supporting the struggles against logging companies but also against protected area managers because they were seen as those big poachers whereas the big poachers were those who are from Yaoundé so my entry point was the discrimination the discrimination I have been discriminated upon because of my linguistic or cultural background but these people are discriminated upon because of their way of life completely abandoned by policies completely you know bantu feel that oh that is my pick me can you imagine somebody owning another person like you can have your dog that is my pick me you can't talk to him without getting to me so i was really touched by by this and i've been working on that issue since then tourism is not seen as an attractive route to economic development bad governance means you have corruption you you know so anything that will, will not profit them so you get a contract from a resource exploiter, a company that will mine, or a company that will log, and then you have huge kickbacks and <laughs> then providing an enabling environment for tourism. There are many things that will enter for tourism. You have to create friendly custom and border officers. You have to provide uh, uh, good transport facilities. You know, you, you, there are lots of things. That, and these things are easily done. Some countries are doing that in East Africa, and which we could do. You know, you have to invest on training people and have good hotel facilities. And it's easy. If I look at where resources are wasted, this is possible. It's not even though we have Ministry of Tourism, but I don't think there's enough interest, uh, enough investments. And what is the interest of the U.S. to develop tourism in Cameroon? Instead of extracting oil or extracting the timber that Cameroonians have, what ties the French to former French colonialism? It's the resources, I have to say that. And uh, it's a shame. It's not mostly the well-being of the people. What is the government's attitude towards uh, nonprofits who might come in and develop something like a ministry of tourism? If you are seen as a, a non-profit, you are seen like an opposition to the government in place. So a non-governmental organization opposing either a logging company that is destroying sacred side of a community. And since that company got authorization or was given authorization from the government, you are seen as opposing the government. <laughs> yeah, so it makes it very difficult for non-state voices to be to be heard. Even though the process, I mean, is is improving with the world becoming a global village, social media with good communication, where if somebody's arrested, yeah, is the whole world shouting. You know, it's it's improving, but before it was really really difficult, and that is why that region, which has been ruled by dictators for quite a long time. It's lagging in terms of social movements. Uh, the Central Africa uh, region as a whole is really lagging behind in terms of social movements. Because civil society actors, non-state leaders were seen as opposing the government than seen as people who bring uh, constructive, even though in their criticism of government action, you know, they provide constructive solution to the problems. You mentioned also that the structure of a centralized government versus regional areas as an impediment to uh, building of social movements. What sort of structure would you envision would be helpful, and how would that come about, where you would have grassroots people speaking amongst themselves and working together as one unit? Yeah, I think if you have a, a strongly decentralized structure where people have voice, where people can uh, can sit down, discuss issues, and what they have discussed inform policy, 
that would be really but if you have a centralized government i don't know the criteria it means people are appointed either from a political union or uh, in an area where nepotism okay that is my brother or this is my tribesman you know you have like one tribe uh, because the president is from this area um, most of the juicy positions are given to people from his area or from his uh, ethnic you have an administrator who thinks he's strongly tied to power he will not listen to people. He will defend his own interests because <laughs> your voice doesn't matter. I'm appointed there. And uh, he can be corrupt. We have individuals who are extremely very wealthy. I don't think in the United States uh, our government officials are as wealthy as business people. Uh, but in our region, you know, you find government officials who are extremely very wealthy, more wealthy than even, um, even uh, businesses. I think <laughs> the government, the president realized we said we have a chunk of government officials who are in prison. It's not, <laughs> I gathered that the United States government has to tell, okay, these people can stage a war and they have enough money to support that for quite a long time. So it's not because they, <laughs> so okay, these guys are now a threat to my power, I put them in prison. But these are people who have been government functionaries for all their life. Where did they get the money? A conversation about environment in Africa is not complete without the mention of China. They are the largest recipient of logs from Cameroon. So I, I didn't mention China. Uh, China now is, uh, you know, one of the biggest players. <laughs> yeah, China, because there's a switch now. I, to my own analysis, is if, if I can easily liaise with, uh, or NGOs in, in Cameroon can easily liaise with NGOs in the United States or NGO, NGOs in Europe, you know, and commonly fight their governments. But where China? Where do you have? How do you <laughs> how do you attack China? You know, back in China, there is no free civil society that you can say, okay, let's start talking to our government from here. They become the best friends of poor governance or poor. Let me not call dictators, but you know, they get easy money to 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 these countries, and then now now they can get the resources without. They don't care about environmental. <laughs> I care little. I mean, I care little about environmental impact assessments. I care little about the people. I've had a particular case in Cameroon where Chinese exploiting research. And when you want to talk to them, they don't care. We have authorization to work with government. You know, so there's no, there's no room for, for dialogue. Uh, yeah. So China is the next very, very big player. The Democratic Republic of Congo has protection on the books for indigenous peoples, but in Cameroon, there is no agency or law for the pygmies. Central Africa Republic also has made some progress, but the reality on the ground means that enforcement is another matter. Presently, uh, in the region, you have the Republic of Congo that has a more specific law on indigenous peoples. In the DRC, there is a law proposal which is in parliament. Uh, in Cameroon, because of constant um, civil society advocacy, the Ministry of International Relations was doing some research findings to see who is indigenous in Cameroon, but Central African Republic is the only country that has uh, ratified the International Labour Organization Convention 169 that has that clearly addressed uh, indigenous people's problem. But you have all those progress, but how is that implemented on the ground? That is a problem. So those are some of the, the, the challenges that we have in the region Creating the, having the policy is one thing, but also implementing it is, is another thing. A more specific law in Congo Brazzaville for indigenous people, but there is no text laying down the application of this law. 
the law recognizes those who have put value in a land because before you get a title for a land you must have put value yeah on that on that land so if you have a farm they can see that okay you have a farm it becomes very very complicated for uh, indigenous baka bajeli bakula batua communities that are found in the region in conclusion, Samuel reiterates the power of small grassroots groups to affect sustainable change. Small grassroots groups can be empowered, their voices can be heard. We can have more uh, policies that policies and practices that are responsive to communities that live in the forest and that are responsive to the environment as a whole. The communities don't want to destroy the forest. The experience I've had all over the region. They, they tell you they are crying because the forest is going away. Empowering uh, communities, creating strong links between them and, and their environment, you know.